morning. Everybody, welcome to the Abstract Podcast. My name is Greg Rathner, CEO and founder of Abstract. And today we have Jeremy Donovan, uh, SVP of Revenue Strategy at Salesloft. Jeremy, please say hi, sir. Hey, Greg. Hey, Claire. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're, I'm super excited. Been a huge fan of all the content you've been putting out over the past couple of years. Uh, really exciting time to be in the kind of the revenue strategy, revenue operations world. And a lot of what you're putting out there, I think, is, is thought provoking and um, insightful for, for companies looking to really formalize their revenue and go to market strategy. So some of the things that we're going to dive into today, I think, are, are really relevant and timely. Um, to give our listeners a little bit of a background and some foundation for your insights and maybe some of your thoughts around things, I want to start with kind of your background. So you started at Gartner um, and then AMA, GLG, CB Insights. Um, looking back at kind of the, the stepping stones of your career, in a lot of ways, I feel like laid the foundation for what you do at SalesLoft today. Uh, have you ever kind of looking back hindsight and gone like, okay, all these pieces lined up and do you ever lean on any of those prior experiences to, to drive some of your decisions at sales loft? Yeah, uh, for sure. The pieces line up and for sure they are informing what I do today. I, I, I now have forgotten whether it was intentional or not intentional. <laughs> so I just say it was, it was not intentional, but okay. my career strategy, I, I'm, I'll, I'll Generally, I think there are careers that are very linear, right? You, you're an SDR, you're an AE, you're a manager, you work your way up to CRO. Yeah. Um, I then, then this path that I took is I, I refer to it as add a word, drop a word. So the, I actually started in a semiconductor company called Xilinx, and I was a semiconductor engineer. And then I dropped that when I joined Gartner, and I one word the analyst, uh, the engineer part, and became a semiconductor analyst. And then throughout my career, I was sort of adding words and dropping words as, as I, you know, picked up ultimately product development, product management, product marketing, corporate marketing, then into sales. I was a CRO briefly. Um, and then I found that I loved sales slash revenue operations. Um, so there it was there was a method to the madness, but I, again, I can't tell you whether that was intentional uh, or not. I feel like it was intentional. And then in terms of um, how those things inform what I do today, I, I was an engineer, obviously, way, way back when. And I've generally pursued things where I could apply a, you know, fact-based, quantitative, analytical, and consultative bent to domains that didn't have those as characteristics. So for me, that was true of marketing many years ago, which is what drew me into marketing. And then, um, you know, sales was more art than science for 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 a long time. And and what drew me into sales was there's still problems to be solved that uh, I find intellectually very, very interesting. Uh -huh. If I were to do like, uh, I, I used to think if I had one more, one more um, switch in me, although I don't think I, I have that switch in me anymore, <laughs> is to go into HR. And because there is another area where, you know, it, it, it was more art than science, but I think that one's becoming more science too. And, and that was really pioneered probably by many people, but I, I credit Laszlo Bach, who was the head of HR. He was ex-McKinsey and then head of HR at Google. Okay. Um, and he really brought sort of scientific uh, processes and consultative processes into uh, the HR world. Um, I'm sure there were others before him that, that I'm not giving appropriate credit to. But anyway, that, that long-winded answer, but yes, method to the badness. And yes, I do use, like I still code, I still use statistics, all those things I still apply to my job. I love that. Um, 
as you were talking about that, it reminds me of Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement speech, where he talks about kind of the breadcrumbs and looking back, kind of all the pieces are, are kind of tied together in one way or another. Um, so your, your kind of just analysis of your history really reminded me of that, uh, that speech he gave. And yeah. it sounds like you ultimately came to the end goal there. <laughs> I'm flattered. No one has ever compared me to, to Steve Jobs. I did, <laughs> I, I did love that speech. Uh, I'm a big reader. We can talk a lot about books probably as well. And the, the yeah. Jobs bio is definitely one of my favorite um, nonfiction books of all time. I'm yeah. actually reading. I didn't know there was one, but there's a Tim Cook bio right now uh, floating around. So that's the book I'm at. Uh, that's I read fiction and nonfiction simultaneously, but that's the fiction, uh, the nonfiction book I'm reading. Uh, like as we speak, it's not as good as the Jobs bio. It's it's a good overview of Apple, but I want more about Tim Cook. Like yeah. it's not giving it's not giving me enough about Tim Cook, and that's what I'm after. Do you ever? We're gonna go off on a little tangent here, just out of pure curiosity. Do you ever kind of wonder, like this myth of Steve Jobs, the persona, the stigma? Do you wonder if like people would be as intrigued? by who he was and who he, like the way his brain worked, if he was still alive today? I, I, I do think so. Uh, and the, I say that because people were intrigued before, you know, like let, let's, let's, let's abstract that to people who, who are alive. Uh, Bill Gates, right? Like, I think there's still a fascination about Bill Gates, not just who he is today, but who he, I'm actually really fascinated by who Bill Gates was when he was at Microsoft, which I don't think, like he was, he was well known to be very intense, not in the Steve Jobs way, but I don't think there's enough about him when he was at Microsoft. And then obviously people are intensely fascinated by Elon Musk, right? Yeah. So I, I, th I, I would just draw a parallel between Jobs and Musk perhaps as, as like two very uh, uh, unusual people that, and, and I think we're just drawn to like, what's the personality of the wealthiest person on the planet? You know, Jeff Bezos, probably the same thing applies. That's true. Yeah, that's a valid point. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's get back on topic. So about a month ago, five weeks ago, you ran a poll on LinkedIn. And this is really going to kind of serve the foundation for our conversation. It had just under 3,500 votes. And um, it was, what is the number one reason sales reps, new sales reps hit quota? Um, rep skill and ability was number one with 32%. Training and enablement ranked 30%. Territory ranked 24%. Um, were these results surprising to you, Jeremy? A little, a little surprising because I actually would have thought territory, that the territories that they were assigned to would have been, would have been number one. Um, and I say that also from some degree of experiences as, as I've gone into different companies and, and worked in, in revenue strategy and ops, it's, it's like the first thing I look at is I'm looking at rep, attainment rep performance and I, I slice and dice that by were they an internal promotion or were they hired from the outside when did they join and what I've seen in a lot of early stage companies is you, you sort of in the first wave you hire some a very early right like seed stage you hire a bunch of people and you just say go right uh -huh. like yep. grab what you can as fast as you can and, and that's that's the right thing to do you don't need to impose a lot of discipline and typically in those early stages unless you're you have a really really hyper targeted like enterprise solution that only has 20 customers on the planet right i mean those things exist but but it's generally not not the norm and then the next stage is okay we've hired a bunch of people we're going to cap the territory at you can hold 100 and you lose an account if you are not sufficiently active however that's defined um, and that's often the stage where I have come into companies and the, and the kind of one of the reasons people I get hired is some, that's not working. They don't know why 
but something's not working. And very, very often it's, it's like a play that I would run almost everywhere I've gone, which is to, to build a, 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 a true equal potential territory model and assign accounts out to AEs so that they're not picking them for themselves anymore. So yeah, for, with respect to that poll, I was, I was a bit, a, a bit surprised. I mean, if you think about right, uh, sort of the behavioral reason why the answer was rep skill and ability. Of course, reps are answering, and they don't want they, they want to believe it's it's th that they that they have control over over their attainment through skill and ability. And I'm not denying that skill and ability is important. I just think, you know, territory is, is probably of equal importance. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that, uh, you know, if, if you're getting, let's say Northern California versus maybe South Dakota yeah, and you're in B2B software sales, there's, um, there's some level of, um, expectation of success. That's just inherent in your territory if you're given one area as opposed to a different one. For sure. And, and like you solve that by, right. You're not, if you have three reps, right. Um, let's say you had just three reps, you're not going to give one East coast, one central and one West. That's madness. You, you probably, if you were in enterprise or if you were in SAS, you might stick all three of them in the West coast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you'd sort of do that for a while. And then, you know, you'll put a few on the East Coast and then eventually you'll put, you know, one for, for you know, the entire swath of the Midwest of the of the of the US. Right. So you, you build that up. And that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at is like equal potential territories. We, we have an internal model that we've developed that um, that that determines for every single account. What do we think the you know, in the economics world, expectation value of that account is. And it, it's three things multiplied together. It's the probability that we will get an op in that account based on firmographics, based on first and third party intent, based on history that we've had with the contacts uh, at, at that particular account. So that probability will get an op. That's the most sophisticated factor. And then we multiply that times our expected win rate if we have an op. And then what our, our average contract value is if we win. So from that, you get an expectation value. And then you can basically add those together to build territories um, for people that are, as I said, equal potential. Because you know, that potential should exceed their, should, you know, should equal or exceed their quota. Otherwise, you got a problem. Yeah. They're not, they're not going to meet, meet their quota. I love how sophisticated that is. And so kind of that analyzing your answer, it definitely makes sense why you would have thought territory would have been number one based upon the analysis and the time and attention sales loft is placed into kind of formulating this model around building territories and how I would, I would assume it's a relatively predictable model that you guys have put together where there's a certain level of um, expected success with that model, right? It, it is. Yeah. Um... I, you know, there's a few things I track on this. One is, is you know, my goal, our goal is to have two thirds of, it's a, you know, sort of conventional metric, but two thirds of reps should meet or exceed quota during the year. And there is more math behind why that two thirds is a magic number. It's because if that happens, then, then uh, because of the people who exceed, you will meet or exceed your total revenue goal for the yep. company. Yep. So, um, so like, that's another thing I'm, we're, we're sort of tracking. And then with respect to predictability, absolutely. Um, you know, our, 
our goal is is the conventional industry one although with a with a finer point on it which is when we forecast we're trying to make sure that we're within plus or minus five percent of the final number based on the number we call on day 15 of the quarter and it's day 15 because we do two weeks of qbrs internal uh qbrs to clean up basically clean up the the ops yeah clean up pipeline clean the pipeline and then so we look at day 15 we look at day 90 and we you know we expect to be within plus or minus five percent and we're routinely within plus or minus three percent so like it is the sophistication of the territory model it's also the sophistication obviously of our of our approach to forecasting i love that i'm sure we could spend all day on that topic alone and um that's awesome so i mean plus or minus three percent and you call that number 15 days into a into 90, the quarter into the into quarter. The 90, yep. That's phenomenal. And I mean, there's a proofs in the pudding why Vista just took a majority stake in sales uh, because <laughs> those numbers are there, right? And numbers don't lie. So that's awesome. Well, let's back it up a little bit and let's get into um, kind of the number one answer, right? Rep skill and ability. When I think of skill and ability, I think of some things that are either innately you're born with um, whether that be athletic ability, um, a certain level of intelligence, um, skill is something that can be crafted over time. It's something that's practiced and practiced and practiced. And so I was, I was kind of puzzled with this because I was thinking about it. And if we just assume for, for argument's sake, that skill and ability is something that is not something that's picked up in one day, um, new reps need to have success earlier rather than later training takes time new reps don't have time there seems to be a disconnect there um or am i overthinking that too much um i would quibble a little bit with how much you're born with i don't know that i don't think you're born with um that much but that's a whole separate separate thing but uh, to your to your point about like yeah when reps are higher they are expected to you know hit the ground running um I, i i do feel that ramp times are unrealistic for almost every position in sales from SDR all the way through, you know, enterprise sales executive. I I think the larger enterprise, like big enterprise companies, Oracle, you know, SAP, Microsoft, uh, Salesforce, I actually think they're relatively realistic about ramp times because I think they've run the data. Like I I know if you get hired at Oracle, it it is, you know, like you're almost in an apprentice program for a year or two Uh Um, and and oftentimes right during that time a lot of you're not on a 50 50 comp plan that that goes live in 90 days days, (laughs) it's not they they know it's not it's not realistic you often have a a non-recoverable draw for you know 12 at least 12 months if not if not more so I, i do think there's an unrealistic unrealistic ramp time and then with respect to yeah skill building uh, this is uh, you know, one thing I do a lot of uh, is I, I pull profiles of people, hundreds if not thousands of people off of LinkedIn, and then I'll crunch the data sometimes myself or I'll ship it off for crunching to Upwork contractors. And I try to figure out like, is there any bio data that's predictive of whether or not somebody will be successful in a role? So this is what the last one I did was actually enterprise AEs. Okay. And I had this, uh, I had, some hypotheses that were confirmed, some that I was surprised that were not correct. So the two that I I felt strongly about 
that I was wrong about is I felt like um, you should only hire enterprise reps who had been at least two years of tenure in their immediate prior role. I right. thought that was really important as a, as a like past success, predicting future success. And that one, at least in the pretty decent amount, I think I pulled like 500 profiles and I run the stats on it. That one's still not statistically significantly different. So that was a shock to me. Um, and, and, uh, it's changed my mind, you know, about like how I would hire people. So, so that in a way that kind of gets at your thing about skill is like, um, they, they can attain, you know, they do come in with skill, even if they have less, less tenure and they can learn. And, and the things they need to learn, like if you think about an enterprise rep, like the things they need to learn is they need to actually learn, I think at least three big things, obviously the product. Yep. You know, almost as important is they also need to learn who to. They're managing a team, right? Like they need to bring in. They need to learn who are the right people on their team to assemble to do the deal, especially in an enterprise deal. Um, and then the uh, the third thing is is like all the logistics and processes for getting deals done in their organization, right? Like how to get through CPQ and all that all that sort of thing. I guess if you threw a fourth thing in, um, well, I talked about the product already. So yeah. So yeah, that, that's probably good. That's fair. So um, you mentioned one of the things, kind of your expectation around pre- previous success being an indicator yeah. of future success. What was the other surprise? The other had? one was related. It was actually that I thought if they, if they're in, if they had evidence in their immediate prior job of president's club or winner's circle or whatever people call it, that that would also be predictive. And, and that was not uh, statistically predictive of success. The, the, the biggest thing that was, those are two things that weren't, the biggest thing that was predictive of success is simply that they were promoted internally okay. from, you know, like an SMB rep into, into an enterprise rep. Um, and we've seen, you know, I've seen that everywhere I've been. I, I see it at SalesLoft. Uh, it's not that we don't have people come in uh, from the outside. You're talking about you know, I forget the exact numbers, but let's say a uh, uh, 45% success rate versus a 55 or a 40 versus 60. So it's not that people who come in from, you know, the outside are not as, are not, can't, can't be successful. It's that let's say four out of 10 of them are versus six out of 10 internal promotions. So that's that. So what, what, when, you know, if you just a small number of reps or whatever, like may not make a big difference, but if you're hiring, you know, tens if not hundreds of or even thousands in the case of large enterprises of reps that's a big performance that's um, a huge 10 percent of 100 million dollars is 10 million dollars yeah yeah so so like then you want to then you actually want to make sure that you've got that internal promotion engine like really really finely tuned in your capacity planning in a very sophisticated way it's interesting so my uh my analysis of what makes a rep successful is not nearly as sophisticated as yours is. Um, I kind of have some sticky notes written down on my desk, but ultimately I've, um, one of the things that I've kind of fought through my career is success of it at an SDR level. Like in order to be successful as an SDR, like you had to have some level of previous success in some type of SDR role. And I've kind of fought that because, um, every successful SDR I've known their background came from knocking on doors, like, house to house, knife selling, mm. internet selling, Cutco. Yeah. Cutco, basically building up confidence and this like lack, like suppressing fear of rejection. 
And um, I found that that was a very good indicator of early success at like an SDR level. So um, I've studied that one too. Okay. <laughs> With like 2000, I know that one was 2000 profiles we looked at. And yeah, um, the number one profile for hiring an SDR is actually someone who spent two years at a, at a recruiting uh, agency. That's okay. number one most successful profile. And you're spot on. Prior SDRs have a much, much, much lower success rate as, as SDRs. There's a few other profiles that um, are not successful. Or, you know, again, some are, but are statistically less successful um, uh, when they get to, to SDRs. But that, that to me is the killer, is the killer profile. Yeah. Recruiters. I mean, that's another job where you just, you face rejection 99% of the time and you just have to learn to pick up the phone and keep going. Yeah. yeah. Oracle, uh, Oracle did, I've talked about Oracle a couple of times, not that they're like the world's greatest company, right? Although they have survived the on-prem to cloud it's rocky, but right. They've survived <laughs> that transition, but yeah. But, uh, uh, the reason I cite them is I had the great privilege to uh, sit in a sort of more intimate setting with their former CEO who passed shortly after that, Mark Hurd, and he was describing their approach to hiring and, and like they had gone through all this data. And one thing that he revealed that I have not tested, but again, I sort of trust the data from them on this is when they looked at people's college backgrounds, because um, especially for new college hires, right? Because they do a lot of that because they're, they're, they are doing that progressive thing. Um, what was, it wasn't like that they were an athlete or they were a this or they were a that. What they found was people who had a diversity of extracurricular activities. So like if you were, you know, you played volleyball and you were in, in the acapella group, right? Like if you had this diverse set of experiences, then then those people, you know, prove to be more successful. I, I think, right, like, why is that? I think it's probably a proxy for curiosity. It's probably a proxy for conscientiousness, might be a proxy for IQ. And all, all the academic studies that are on job performance, whether it's sales or elsewhere, say that it's basically three things. It's IQ, conscientiousness, and job skill. So, you know, that, that's all, those are the things to test. So it's so fascinating that you said curiosity was the first thing that you listed because that's immediately where, where my mind went, where if you're dabbling or kind of exposing yourself to different things, it's because you're naturally curious mm. about the world around you. And I think of Mark Roberge's um, book that he wrote, um, what was it called? A sales machine or something with machine in it. Yeah. yeah. Sales acceleration. Formula, sales accel maybe? Yep. And so something he like listed that. as coachability and like a natural curiosity is I think the top two traits of successful sales reps. And yeah. so I think that again, like Oracle sees it. And I love the parallel you drew there with the, the natural curiosity, exposing yourself to different things. Um, I got kicked out of college and I had no extracurricular activities. So I would have been an outlier in that study. <laughs> and, and there are, right. Is that the point is, is uh, you know, often what we're talking about is like, again, 40% success versus 60% success. So like, can you find people who didn't go to college who were enormously successful? Absolutely. Can you get, find people who were, you know, who uh, quit college and were enormously successful? Absolutely. The point is large numbers. Like if you yeah. look whatever at, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, people, and you're talking about millions of people, right? Like you're better off going, 
going to college than not going to college. You're better off getting a grad degree than not getting a grad degree. Like education yeah. is correlated with, you know, with um, success, success. Yeah. but not once you get into, you know, the law of small numbers, right. Um, that's different. And then you can put asterisks on things like, you know, I, both Bill, I think Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard, <laughs> but it's hard. Like the, the hard part is getting in. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's not to say that completing is not important also, but, but um, right. Is, is these are people with core intelligence to begin with. I did want to make a quick comment on six on like, cause you, you mentioned the sort of the born with, I do think a lot about there's all these, there's, I think about seven dimensions of success, but let's just take financial success for a second. I, I do think so much of it is, is like three things. It's, it is yes, hard work. Yes. Um, um, things, you know, that you were, uh, that you were given and we'll, I'll come back to that. And then the third one's luck. You know, it's, it is all three have to play. I think people often who are quote unquote successful think it was like all them and they fail to recognize how much circumstances played either luck or like, you know, it, it, or gender, ethnicity, right? Ec- economic um, birth, all these things that you have no control over you have no control over yeah yeah it's interesting uh jordan peterson he's a psychologist psychologist i think he is yeah and he talks about one of his podcasts he talks about um how everybody in silicon valley thinks that they're just this amazing you know person self-made and he kind of dives into he's like yes maybe you worked hard but you're also surrounded by amazingly successful people in an environment that breeds success um in a like and there's just so many other things outside of what you can control that ultimately have a factor in your success. Um, and I, I think it's always interesting that because yes, you need to work hard, but you also need a tremendous amount of luck along the way and things have to go right. For sure. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't miss the fact that I'm a six foot five Caucasian, <laughs> you know, whose mom was a teacher and, you know, like all these things that, that, that I was gifted. Yes. In birth. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And it's a, a gift, I think is the appropriate word to use there because it's something that we should be thankful for. Um, so on that note, let's, let's kind of polish this up with a couple of things. So we, we've kind of hit on like ramp time, Jeremy, and, and I, I 1000% agree. I think ramp time is just so it just sets people up for success and places unnecessary pressure on a situation that's already kind of pressure. Um, stressful. And so when I think back to my time as an SDR, as an account executive, to my colleagues that have gone through this process, so much of sales training and onboarding is kind of rinse and repeat. It's like the same bad habits over and over and over again. And so without giving away any kind of secret sauce, what, what does sales loft do differently to, to set reps up for success throughout onboarding, through training, and, and really make sure that like two thirds of your reps are hitting their quota along with certain reps over exceeding their quota because industry stats put it, you know, less than 50% of reps are hitting their quota. So what do you guys do differently? 
I would love to claim that we do something radically differently than the rest <laughs> of the SaaS industry, but we, you know, like we really don't. I mean, I, I think it, it, it comes down to right is, is like this maniacal um, attention to hiring for, for sure, both in the selection of, of people um, and attention to diversity um, and the way that the, the, the very hyper, like even for us, when I joined four years ago, like even for a small company, we were so hyper-structured in the, in the interviewing process. So I, I, I think of it as selection as opposed to interviewing. It's just a subtlety in, in terminology, but I think it's an important terminology that we're selecting people for the company and, and you know, we reject. Um, um, I think one time we had, so I saw some stat that like, it was harder to get a job at sales law than it was to get into Harvard. Like oh, wow. we, we, we reject, you know, so many candidates. So that's one piece. And then once they get, once they get on board, I mean, again, sort of the, the circumstance matters, right. Is, is the product, you know, I, I was a customer for years before I joined. And um, so like, it's not, no product sells itself. Um, maybe, you know, maybe zoom during, during, the, the, the pandemic sold yeah. itself, but, <laughs> but a few products sell themselves, but, you know, solid product. And, um, and then like we, we have over-invested throughout. I'm not, I don't run enablement or nor have I run enablement sales law, but we have over-invested in enablement throughout, throughout our um, existence because we just believe in it. So there's, there's a, a ton of of like attention given to selling skills. But again, I think that's true of other SaaS companies, role-playing, learning the product, learning the people and, and like how deals get done. We invest a ton in sales tech, as, as you'd imagine, like we have so many tools for people <laughs> to use and, and, you know, those things are hopefully additive, uh, additive to them. Yeah. It, uh, you know, if I'm trying to channel, like if Kyle, our CEO, were answering this question, I think that his answer would actually be the culture of the company that, um, you know, if you, if you hire people and you create an environment of, um, of collegiality of warmth, he would use the word love. Um, although I, you know, that, that I, I sometimes go back and forth on whether that, that, is a little Silicon Valley, the TV show, uh, yeah. or, or not or Silicon Valley, the real Silicon Valley. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, I do think that what is it? Happy employees make for happy customers. Yeah. I, I like if there, if there's a secret, that's probably it. Um, and it's really, you know, I'm, I'm 48. Um, I haven't worked at a ton of companies in my life, but I've worked at enough. And, and this is a truly special, truly, truly special, uh, place. That's awesome. Well, I think best, Pete, best place I've ever worked. Peter Schultz said, hire for character, train for skill, right? And if you hire the right character, you hire the right attitude. Um, the rest kind of takes care of itself in a lot of ways. And, yeah. uh, it forms and you the mostly foundation. get that. I'll say like, you mostly get that right. What, what, another thing from experience, two more things is like, why, why is our, why is our culture distinct? And the thing I learned, and I only learned it at sales loft, it's obvious in hindsight is that culture comes from the top. So every company basically has the same core values. They just yep. have different wording. Yeah. What is different about Sales Loft is, is Kyle and Rob, our, our, our co-founders, like walk the walk every day on those, on those values. And they, will, they hold themselves publicly accountable if they deviate. 
and and that's something I've never I've never ever seen uh, before. So I, I think there was a second one that, but I'm having a senior a, a senior moment right now. Um, but that, like to me, the, it might it may come back to me in, the, in our recording time or not. But like that's that really is is the defining thing about um, successful culture in companies is is how the is how the CEOs uh, operate. Like I, I once worked for a company where the CEO built himself like a separate wing in the right. office with a locked door and you know a tv and a bathroom and you know whatever like it just was really weird i left that company i can't um, i can't yeah. i can't imagine many people stayed um no unfortunately they didn't and the culture was broken you know so yeah yeah that's uh that's awesome i often think about you know abstracts not going to have an office anytime soon but i often think about like if we had an office like i put me out in the open office floor plan, like put me on a desk right next to an SDR. Like that's like, that's where I want to be. And that's, I think you need to be willing to step up and, and show people you're willing to, to walk the walk, not just talk to talk and for sure kind of stand behind a PowerPoint presentation or a company wide email sometimes. So, well, Jeremy, we went way over our planned time, but this was awesome. I, I really, I took away some big things. I, I loved kind of your, your territory model and predictability model, which again, lends itself to why you thought that would be a, uh, the, the poll you ran might be a little bit different in terms of the outcome, um, kind of the indicators of success and the different metrics you have in terms of hiring and what you're looking for, um, le- learning product, team management, logistics, how to move deals. I, I think there's so many takeaways. I'm kind of having a hard time wrapping my head around the three most important ones that I want to take away other than uh, I loved our time together, man. And this was uh, this was very insightful. I'm super excited for our listeners to get their hands on this. And uh, thank you for your time. If uh, anybody wants to get hold of you, um, get in touch with you, learn more about Sales Loft, what's the best way to do that, Jeremy? I'm sure the same answer you always get, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. So yeah, yeah just uh, connect with me uh, on LinkedIn. I, I post a little you know, uh, fact-based analytical actionable tidbit almost every day. So, yep. uh, hopefully those the people find those valuable, but, but that's the best way. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your day, Jeremy. Thanks. It was Bye. a blast.